So good to be here with you today. Good to see you today as we get down towards the end of the year. Hard to believe. Thanksgiving week. And then, uh, then we're into the Christmas season and on towards the end of the year. But uh, it's good to be here. And there was, it was kind of this Sabbath here before we got to all of those already themed Sabbaths. Because really, after this week, everything is, is themed with the, the season of the year. And I was thinking about what I was going to do today. But what, what I finally settled on is actually... The sermon I had written for the week that I wasn't feeling well, and Pastor Marley spoke. And, and then we ended up doing a couple other things uh, the last couple of weeks uh, before that. And this one was just kind of left, and it was connected to the Luke series we were doing before. But I was thinking, well, where am I going to do it? Do I put it off till next year? When would this happen? And I finally thought, well, well let's just do it this week. And it'll fit into this slot, and then next week, of course, we'll be on a Thanksgiving theme, and then we'll be on a Christmas theme, and New Year's after that. So, so it works here. I think it works here. And, and maybe this will come as good news to some of you. Um, we've been a little heavy for the last three weeks. The uh, last Sabbath was, of course, my wife Alicia was sharing some of our remarkable experience with our son Nathan and his... Uh, his heart event that took place and all the uh, amazing things associated with that. And that was heavy. And then the two weeks before that, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of teaching elements in what we were talking about. So, so in that sense, this one will be a little easier today. And I think a, a little shorter than we've been. We've been a little long the last few weeks. So uh, apologies to the connect groups as we've been running up onto their time each week. We should be good this week. Should be plenty of time to talk and all that, as long as I don't just keep talking and we never actually get to the sermon. But uh, that's, that's what we're doing today. I'm glad you're here. Uh, glad that you're a part of the Boulder Adventist Church today. The, uh, the, the refreshments out there this morning are spectacular, so I hope you got some of those. Also, just a reminder, tonight uh, at 5 o'clock we have our business meeting, and I hope you'll come for that because we're going to talk about the budget and a little bit about the mission and the vision uh, that the elders have been working on. So I hope you'll be here uh, to be able to be a part of that. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this opportunity to be in this place. Now, Lord, I pray that uh, as we reflect on your word, that you will speak to us We will be careful, and we will be keen, and we will be watchful to see who we're following and who our teachers are. In Jesus' name, amen. So right up front here, I'm going to give you the key sentence. And if you're able to to embrace this and completely understand it, you could arguably get up and leave immediately. But I'll just give it to you because this is what we're working towards. And here's what it is. It matters who you follow. It matters who you learn from. Because who you follow and who you learn from will determine whether or not you can see clearly. So that's the point. That's the whole point today. That's what we're going to take time to reflect on. Now, apologies. I, I failed 
to give Brigida my text today. I don't know how that slipped my mind. I think it was because I had already written the sermon, so I didn't go through my usual process, which part of that is to give her the text. So, so you may or may not see them on the screen this time. Fortunately, we're not going very many places, so if you just want to take a Bible in front of you, you'll be fine. But as we get into this, let me give you context, a little recap here. As you recall, we were spending time in the book of Luke, and we were doing a slow walk in the book of Luke. And we started in chapter 4, and we worked our way through 4, and through chapter 5, and we were in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Luke uh, writes a number of things that appear in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. You know, Matthew has that very succinct chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and all of it into that section there. Luke breaks it up a little bit. He's got some of it in chapter 6, some of it in chapter 12. But some of the things we looked at over those weeks when we were reflecting on that, that I just call your mind back to, is the idea of reversals. You see, the Bible doesn't always say what we want it to say. And sometimes the way we interpret the words and apply them to ourselves is not always accurate to what they actually mean. And I'll, we gave this example, and we wrestled with this example. In, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. And we hear that and we think, Oh, yes, Lord, I'm so poor. We want that to be about us. But then right after that, he said, But woe to the rich. And we're like, yes, yes, bless us poor people and not those rich people. But are we really the poor people? If you look in the context of the reality of the world, are we the poor people? No, I'm afraid we're not. So when we read that passage, we should not be applying blessed are the poor to ourselves. We should be applying woe to the rich to ourselves. We wrestled with this idea that was not comfortable, but this idea that it was not without reason that God has caused that our lives in this world would be difficult. Now see, that's, that's a hard way to say it. We want to say it like this, that God has allowed our lives to be difficult. We don't want to attribute any of that to him. But I suggested to you when we wrestled with that passage that an honest reading of the Bible suggests that God intentionally made our fallen lives difficult. And why was that? Because of this. The greatest dangers to our righteousness, our faithfulness, and our spirituality are wealth, comfort, and ease. When do we get in trouble? Sometimes it's when we don't have enough to do. Sometimes when it's just a little too easy. Sometimes when we can buy our way to anything we want. Blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich. We had the section where we talked about the golden rule and the need to love our enemies and to pray for our abusers and to give to those who ask, that's the polite way of saying beg, 
and to be merciful, even as the Father is merciful to us, and to be merciful even to those people who are worse than us. You know, we have our own weaknesses, but at least I'm better than them, right? And I, but I need to be merciful to them, which kind of brought us to the next week, which was judge not that you be not judged, which is what I kind of did right then in making that suggestion that, that I was better than them. It's kind of tough when you, really, when you really take time to read the Bible. It's a little rough. It was in this message that we wrestled with this uncomfortable concept, Luke 6, verse 38, the last part. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And if we're honestly willing to accept this principle that with the measure I use, it will be measured back to me, we have to at least entertain the thought that some of what falls upon us is actually our own fault. We're just getting back what we gave. Now, I'm not saying that abuse doesn't happen. I'm not saying that there are not times when we are unjustly treated. But I am suggesting to you that the Bible says sometimes what we get we really kind of deserved. And that should cause us to consider very carefully how we treat each other. Unless, of course, you like drama and pain in your life. If you have relationships and you go around stirring up trouble, expect there to be trouble in your life. That's just how it works. But how do we keep from, from running afoul of the potential issues we've seen in these passages as we reflected on them? Are there things we can be aware of that will help us? I want to suggest today that Jesus gives us some practical advice that is absolutely obvious on its face, but unfortunately advice that is not always followed. Luke chapter 6, verse 39. Luke 6, verse 39. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now, it's probably one of the shortest parables in the whole Bible. That's it. That's the whole thing. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Now, of course, we know this is literally true. But it is also figuratively true and the worst case scenario for us or for anyone else is when we don't even know that we're blind and we go charging ahead in our ignorance. These words of Jesus remind me of a story, and I think it's a story that brilliantly illustrates uh, in, a, in the figurative way what Jesus is talking about here. And it's the story from John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is the story of the man born blind. And it's a story that gets started with these words. John chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now there are several things in this short little passage that connect extremely well with where we were in Luke chapter 6. First of all, there is a blind man, a literal blind man, who needs help. And at least in this case, he understands he's blind. Now ironically, Jesus will send the blind man to the pool of Siloam in the story. Somehow he's able to get there. He has navigated his way. But, but he doesn't have someone lead him. Secondly, and when you read the second verse, you realize that there is a blind or at least a short-sighted assumption on the part of the disciples when they see this man. Verse 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Their assumption here is that for anyone to have such a terrible condition, they must have sinned, or somebody did. But then you get the surprising answer from Jesus that, that puts an interesting spin on the purpose that sometimes hardships in our lives serve. And this is a view that would be very hard to accept if Jesus himself hadn't said it. He says, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus' short answer to why he was born blind is that so that I could come along today and heal him and reveal who I am to the world. That the works of God might be revealed in him. Why was he born blind? So that I could heal him. Well, that would have implications if you took it into your life, wouldn't it? And he goes on, then verse 4 is a reflection on the reality of light and darkness. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. See all these images of seeing and not seeing. Night is coming when no one can work. And then finally a statement from Jesus that, that probably was not well understood at the point that he said it, but we can understand it better now after the life of Jesus, after we know the story. I've said this to you multiple times before. We are the blessed ones who live after the life of Jesus. And because of our knowledge and understanding of what's been accomplished in Jesus and how he reveals the Father, we start at a point beyond where any of the Old Testament prophets ever reached because they never knew the story of Jesus. And so this verse 5, as long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. You would have been tempted to hear that very literally at the point when Jesus is saying it. As long as Jesus is standing here, we have light. But we understand it in another context, don't we? Because the Holy Spirit has come into the world and brought the light of Jesus into the world. And now we serve as those lights in the world. It's like we were saying in the children's story this morning. How can you be a light? in the world. Well, it's by having Jesus in your heart. Anyway, the details of this story is not really what we're interested in. Suffice it to say, Jesus heals the man born blind, which is an act that causes quite a stir, for it's not so much 
a physical repair that this man needs. You see, it's not like he could see at one point and lost his vision, and now Jesus is fixing him. Instead, it's more an act of creation that's taking place here because this man has never been able to see, and, and maybe he didn't even have eyes. I don't know, but, but when you look at how Jesus heals him, it's quite amazing. He takes dirt and he spits on it and makes mud and rubs it on the man's eyes. And then he says, go wash. It's an amazing reference to creation because how, how does God create in the first place? He got down and out of the... Out of the dust of the earth, he formed humanity. And now here we have Jesus taking dirt again and giving the man what he never had, eyes that see. It's an act of creation. So yes, obviously this event causes a stir. And the Pharisees are intent on proving it didn't happen, which they failed to do. And all along the way, as the Pharisees continue to blind themselves to the reality of what has taken place, the larger reality of who Jesus is and what he has done and will do, they're intentionally trying not to see but in the midst of this, this man born blind who started the morning helpless begins to see more and more clearly to the end that he ends up making a fool of the leaders who are questioning his experience. In the end, those Pharisees who refuse to see collapse back into the blindness that the disciples display at the beginning, refusing to see that the reason the man was born blind was so that Jesus could heal them, they could learn about it and believe. That's the whole point of the story. But they refused to do that. They refused to accept that this whole story happened so that they might believe. This is the last thing they're willing to do. So here's how it goes down. John chapter 9, verse 30. The man answered the Pharisees, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he, Jesus, comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He's already referencing the creation story here, isn't he? This hasn't happened since God made eyes in the first place. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now here's their answer. Here's their, their powerful crushing answer. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us and they cast him out. They just couldn't see it. And the man who'd been healed just couldn't not see it. All of which leads to this exchange and our connection back to our original text in Luke. John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said... 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Because remember, he's never seen Jesus, right? He was blind. Jesus rubs mud on his eyes. He's still blind. He goes to the pool. He does what Jesus says. Now he sees, but he doesn't, he doesn't recognize Jesus. He hasn't seen him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So these words of Jesus are, are full of literal meaning and figurative meaning. You have seen him. You are no longer blind, either literally or spiritually. And we're going to connect this with Luke 6, but first let's connect it with Luke 4. This was back when we started this series, when Jesus was addressing the synagogue in Nazareth with these words. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. So this whole idea of the blind being able to see is central to the purpose and calling of Jesus. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were trying to see him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you know as the story fleshes out, they're not able to see it. And they take him to the edge of the hill to throw him down. This recovery of sight to the blind that Jesus had come to give is both literal and figurative. And it was to be a sign as to who Jesus was and what he had come to do. Now, in fairness, Jesus was not what everyone expected. We even have this from chapter 7 of the book of Luke. Regarding John the Baptist, the very one who was sent before him. Jesus was so much not even what John the Baptist expected that we have this in Luke chapter 7 verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He's having trouble seeing. You see how this blindness theme is everywhere? And how it is a supernatural thing that even we who have physical sight need our spiritual blindness removed? And even when we've been faithful, we can sometimes struggle to see? Because here is John suffering. And he's like, is this really the thing? Is this the plan? 
Verse 21, in that hour Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. All of this was in the experience of the man born blind, and his response is exactly what everyone's response is supposed to be. John 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And here it is. Here's the response. This is the one we're all supposed to have when we have seen, when Jesus has enabled our eyes to see. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. But it doesn't end there. The next part is our direct connection back to Luke 6. John 9, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. It's the conundrum of Jesus. If you believe, you will see. If you don't believe, you will become even more blind. That's the conundrum. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We see it. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, let me connect this back to two weeks ago. You remember what we talked about two weeks ago? We talked about that vision in Daniel chapter 2 that I told you is the great framing vision of all prophecy within the Bible and how you have these kingdoms in this image, and it goes down to the feet of iron and clay. But what happens at the end, do you remember? There's a stone cut without human hands. And what does that stone do? It strikes the image and crushes it until the wind blows it away. You see the connection in these words? The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stone comes and crushes the kingdoms of the world. And that stone is Jesus. And the wind blows it away. And the kingdom of God grows and fills the earth. John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Well, these words, not surprisingly, 
were not well received by the Pharisees standing by who this whole day had been arguing with this man who in the morning was blind, but now he could see. They've not had a good day. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Verse 41, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, they were being purposely blind. They saw the story. They knew the implications of what happened. There was only one conclusion that was appropriate. I see, I believe, I worship. That was appropriate, but they weren't going to do that. So they had to do everything they possibly could come up with to explain it away in order to not believe. But at the end of the day, all they had done is take one another's hand and lead each other into a pit. When a blind man leads a blind man, they both fall in the pit. And that's exactly what happened in this story. Luke 6, verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The story of the man born blind is the perfect illustration of, of the blind leading one another into a pit. But it's not the man born blind that's leading people into the pit. If you pay attention to him, he's leading people to Jesus. It's the ones who started the day thinking they could see that deliberately walked themselves into the pit because they don't want to believe. And this leads directly to the next part of this passage in Luke. Because it matters who you follow. Luke 6 verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. It's a double-edged sword statement. For if you follow the right teacher, one that is not blind, you will become more and more enlightened as a result. But if you're following the wrong teacher, it won't go so well. Unlike the man born blind, who when he met Jesus, when he could see, said, Lord, I believe, you will instead find yourself in a slightly different crowd, not shouting, I believe, but instead shouting, crucify him. It matters who you follow. And this should give us all significant pause as we reflect on a couple of questions. Question number one, what voices am I listening to in my life? Question number two, what teachers am I following? Question number three, whose disciple am I becoming? So I'm going to invite the band to come back up here. And we're going to do something a little bit different here at the end. So, so if you have a, 
a little piece of paper somewhere, or you can pull one out of the seat in front of you, and you can take a pen or something like that. I'm going to ask you these questions again, and I want you to reflect for a minute while they're coming up here and getting ready to go on how you would answer these questions. And you may even want to write down your answer there. doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be wordy, but just reflect. And I think this is highly relevant as we enter into the, the season of the political process where the world is full of people who want us to follow them. Saying lots of big things and lots of crazy things. And I just want to throw that out there. It matters who you follow. So let me give you those questions again. The first one. What voices am I listening to in my life? Now I want you to think about something. You've We've all got one of these, or most of it, except Peter. Peter doesn't know how this works. But all the rest of you have one. What voices are you following? Where do you get your news? What echo chamber do you live in? Because this thing is set up to keep feeding you what it thinks you want not set up to give you what's true. Okay, now I'm not picking on any particular source here. I'm just saying that if you show a preference one way or another, you'll get all the positive on what you agree with and all the negative on what you hate, and you'll live in an echo chamber. You will be following someone or something, even if it's just AI. What voices are you listening to? What teachers are you following? What teachers? Who is explaining reality to you? Now, okay, yeah, I hope I'm helping, but please, it's not just me. There better be more voices in your life than, there better be more voices you're hearing on spiritual subjects than just mine. Because I like to, I mean, I agree with everything I say, but that doesn't mean I'm right on everything I say. I'd like to think it's at least 90%, but how would I know? And the problem is I'm not sure what the 10% is, even if it is 90. So you gotta have voices, you gotta hear more. And then finally, whose disciple are you becoming? Invariably, we become disciples in a sense of different humans and different things. But at the end of the day, we want to be Jesus' disciples above everything else. Don't let the blind lead you into a pit. Don't refuse to see. Don't refuse to believe. 